Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, please. Last, uh, last Sunday, Sue and I were in Salem, Oregon, sharing about the Baptist Network Northwest at Bethany Baptist Church. Saw a lot of friends, saw some of our college professors who uh, w- went to Sunday school. One of my college professors was uh, teaching Sunday school. He's retired now, of course. One of our classmates was a member of that church. He's been a member of that church since we left college. He's been there all this time and uh, living for the Lord, serving the Lord. We had a good time, had a good time sharing, and uh, you'll be happy to know that this isn't the only church that gets out after noon <laughs> when I'm preaching. <laughs> I'm going to spread that all over the Northwest. We're, we're going to make a new norm. Uh, so, um, We got on I-5 after lunch, and uh, we're headed north, and uh, drove a long while, and then we traded, and Sue was driving, and, and uh, I got to sleep, and I, I woke up and kind of picked up my phone and was going to check the phone, and, and then there's this sign on the freeway. You know, they have these new traffic signs, and it said, uh, blocking accident 10 miles ahead. And, and I was right in the middle of checking a, an email. Somebody from the church had sent me an email, actually, already. And, and she's going, get the map out and figure out what we need to do. And I'm kind of dawdling on the phone. And, and I'm thinking, it's 10 miles ahead. Surely we have a couple of miles to figure this out. Wrong. It's a 10-mile backup. Oh my goodness, I thought, you're kidding me. You mean these red lights go for 10 miles on the freeway? Oh Lord, so we suffered through it for about another two miles till the next exit, and I looked on the map and uh, found that we could go out through Yelm and uh, come, up, uh, come up around on you know, some secondary road like Highway 9, and I thought, hey, Phil Perry lives out in Yelm, I'll give him a call and say, hey Phil, we're driving right through your town, and Phil says, come on. Come on over to our house, we'll visit, and then we'll, we'll go to dinner. And uh, so, uh, you know, about three and a half hours later, we got on the road, and there wasn't a car in sight, and uh, we got home at about 12.30. I hate traffic backups when they're stop and go, especially when they're mostly stop. Can you imagine going on a trip and you come out to the freeway entrance, and you look, and there's a sign that says 10-mile backup, and you think, I'm going to go that way. No. There's no way you'd do that. No way you'd put yourself in the place of pain on purpose, unless there's some incredibly higher significant thing that you're after. As we talk about Jesus approaching the cross, I want you to think about this today. Jesus saw the cross coming and he walked right to it. Jesus saw the cross coming. He saw the 10 mile long backup and he went right to it. Look with me at Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. Now they, the disciples and Jesus, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. If you don't know, that doesn't mean they were going north. Jerusalem sits on a a high hill, and everybody in Israel always talked about going up to Jerusalem. 
So no matter what direction you're coming from, you always went up to Jerusalem. That's what they're talking about. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. Jesus been talking, and the disciples, their, their minds are whirling. They, they're not getting it all. They were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And then he took the twelve aside. There was more than the twelve in this entourage walking along. He took the twelve aside, and he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's how he referred to himself, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him, that's, that's whip him with the, with, the, with the whip that has the, the terrible cutting things in it. They will spit on him, and they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. You need to understand that Jesus clearly saw the cross coming from a long ways away. When we refer to the cross of Christ, we refer not just to the actual few hours that he spent on the cross, but we're talking about the whole time of of suffering and, and ill treatment that he took in the process of going to the cross. The hatred, the injustice, the punishment, the torture, the wrath of God, and ultimately the physical death. Jesus saw the cross coming, and he saw how hard it would be. He knew it was something no ordinary man could endure. But this right here in Mark 10 that we just read isn't the first time or the only time he talked about it. Turn your page back to Mark 8 and verse 31, maybe a couple pages depending on your Bible there. Mark 8, 31. So now we're going back in time just a little bit. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, again that's his reference to himself, that comes out of the book of Daniel if you'd like to look that up later. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Turn over a page to Mark 9, verse 11. And they asked him, saying, why do the scribes, the experts in the Old Testament law, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first before the Messiah, before him? And he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also already come. It's a reference to John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. Several times, you know, they're journeying along through their ministry, through their days, and he says, this is what's going to happen to me. A little bit later, he says, this is what's going to happen to me. A little bit later, he says, this is what's going to happen to me. Jesus knew how he would die. He knew how he would die. Listen to the words of John 12. Now, is my, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
but for this purpose I came to this hour. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. When we hear that phrase, lifted up from the earth, we think, what is that talking about? Lifted up from the earth is talking about dying on a cross. In the Old Testament, people who deserved to die and were put to death, what we call capital punishment, were generally stoned. Okay? This method of, cruci- of putting someone to death was created by the Romans, the Gentiles, and so it was especially hated because it was a non-Jewish way to die. I, I hate to say there's an honorable way to be killed and a dishonorable way to be killed. When it comes to Christ, that's kind of a, really, kind of a statement. And yet, God did this in part so that all men would be drawn to him. Remember what happened while he was hanging on the cross? People came by and insulted him. They stood around to watch to see what would happen. In the Jewish way of putting someone to death by stoning, you, it doesn't take very many stones. Boom, they're, they're, you, know, you hit them in the head, they're dead, they're laying there, cover them up with stones, it's over. In this way of death, typically, they would hang there for days. You remember the part of the crucifixion where they came by to break the legs so they would speed up their death because the Passover was happening? That was a special thing for the Passover time. Normally, the Romans didn't do this. They just let people hang there, and that was part of the whole thing. You see what happens to people who break the law? And so Jesus was lifted up. He was put to death. Only the Gentiles, only the non-Jewish people, the government around them had the authority to do it. My point is this. Jesus knew that's how he was going to die. There's no doubt in his mind. He wasn't thinking, well, maybe I'll be run through with the sword. Maybe somebody will stone me. He knew he was going to be on a Roman cross. Number two, Jesus knew who would facilitate his death. When Jesus had said these things in the upper room with the disciples, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you that one of you, one of the twelve who's been with me for three years, one of you will betray me. And of course, we know that was Judas. And Jesus knew that ahead of time. Have you ever known ahead of time for three years that someone's going to do you dirt? And if so, did you love them? and care for them, and speak to them kindly for those three years? No, I think, wow, really? He saw that coming. He knew who was going to facilitate his death. It gets even more significant when we read this, that Jesus knew why he would die. Now, I, I know your immediate thought is, well, he died for the sins of the world. It goes beyond that. When we think about the question, why did Jesus die So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. This is in the garden when they're coming to arrest him. And Peter thought he was going to stage this this little civil war and keep Jesus from being arrested. And, And Jesus said, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup? Shall I not walk through the things which my Father has given me? Or do you not think 
Again, in the garden, recorded by Matthew, do you not think I could pray to my father and he will provide for me more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, Peter, <laughs> Peter's thinking, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my sword out and we're gonna have our last stand right here. And Jesus says, Peter, <laughs> in other words, have you been with me so long and you don't understand? I could say, Father, I need, I need the army of angels to come down here and finish this. Don't you think I could ask for that? Sure he could. But if I did that, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? He knew how God had laid it out. He knew what he needed to go through. John 18, Pilate, therefore, the, the Roman uh, authority who, who is uh, interviewing, interrogating Jesus, who has the authority to set him free or the authority to condemn him to death on the cross, Pilate therefore says to him, are you a king then? That was the only crime that Pilate was interested in. Are you going to throw over the government here and raise up the Jews against the Romans? Because if you are, I am all against that. Pilate says, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. This whole process that Jesus was going to go through was planned by God. Ephesians 1 tells us before the foundation of the earth. Jesus knew how bad the pain of the cross would be, and he walked right to it anyway. I have a friend whose son got a job, you know, when he was in high school, one of his early jobs, at a big box store. I think it was like a big hardware store. And he was, you know, checking people out, you know, doing the, doing the clerk thing. And somebody came along early in his first day, and some customer, and gave him a hard time. And what do you suppose he did? He took his little name tag or his vest off and put it down and he walked out the door and he never came back. Great reaction, huh? <laughs> That's what we'd all like to do at times, isn't it? You know, you, you're doing your job. Uh, I, I was talking to somebody yesterday who done some business and, and they're saying, man, these people, I'm, they're so hard to do business with. And, and, uh, you know, you just like to just walk away. Somebody treats you bad, you go to the family event, and you think, I don't want to talk to you, I'm out of here. Jesus saw all of this coming, and he walked right into it. But that wasn't all that he saw coming. Jesus also saw the disciples' confusion about him coming. Look at Mark 9. Verse 30. Mark 9 and verse 30. Then they departed from there, and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he taught his disciples and said, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he was, is killed, he will rise the third day. We read that already, but we didn't read this next verse. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, you and I have the benefit of history, 
we're looking back. We have the benefit of reading all four Gospels and all of the rest of the New Testament and all of the Old Testament. So it's a little easier for us when we read verse 31 and the words of Jesus, we go, what's so hard to understand? Well, what was so hard to understand was th- this, this was a... This, this was 180 degrees to what they expected. They expected what we would call a knight in shining armor, the, the king on the white horse. They expected this Messiah to ride into town and to lead them in a political and social upheaval to where Israel would be a free and independent country again, ruled by the Messiah. That's really what they thought was going to happen. And that's why in Acts chapter 1, after Christ has died, buried, resurrected, showed himself for, for many days, why they said, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus just went, oh, guys, it's not for you to know the times and seasons. It's not now, not now. And so when he says this to them, they're just saying, what are you talking about? They just couldn't get it. And they were afraid to ask, which, which to me means their second thoughts might have been like this. I hope that doesn't mean what I think it means. Because if it just took right on the surface, they're going to kill you? That is not where I thought this was going. Luke gives us more detail. Then Jesus took the 12 aside, okay? He split the 12 off of the multitude of people that were following him. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles, will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Now, now we're coming a little farther down to what appears to be the truth, which is this. Apparently, God didn't want the disciples to fully grasp everything about Jesus' suffering ahead of time. You say, well, why, why wouldn't God just tell them the whole story? My only guess would be this. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And if you were in their skin and Jesus says, now here is exactly what's going to happen, would you have stuck around for it all? (laughs) You might have been scared out of your skin as they were, as it was, even in the Garden of Gethsemane. John, in his gospel, tells us a number of times about the disciples finally understanding what Jesus said. You see, the gospels were written after the events were lived. No, you know, maybe somebody was keeping a journal of the life of Christ. I don't know. Nobody knows. But John wrote his gospel standing out here years later, remembering back. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten Son. And he tells about Jesus. And then at several points, he says something like this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Now remember, John's writing about himself. He's one of the disciples. His disciples did not understand these things at first. 
But when Jesus was glorified, that means after his death, burial, resurrection, and gone back to heaven, then they remembered these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Here's the thought I'd like you to to consider today. How hard would it have been for Jesus to patiently work with the apostles while not able to tell them every single thing. God's plan was different, okay? You and I can sit here and, and, and think it over all we want and armchair quarterback and say, well, Jesus should have just told him everything. In God's wisdom, God said, no, he shouldn't tell him everything. And so for all of those years, he had to hold back. He had to hold back for their own good. And how hard would that have been when times like this happened? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and rise again the third day. Then Peter took him aside. Could I just supplement that saying, Peter knew better. Peter, the smart one, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. How would that be if you're Jesus and you're thinking, God, can I just give him the whole story so he can see the beginning from the end? And God says, no, it's not the time, it's not the way. Peter needs to go through this in faith and come out on the other side with that backbone of steel that he will get and he will stand up for now, no. And so Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of the God, but the things of men. If that's not bad enough, turn with, look at with me at Mark 10, 33. Mark 10, 33. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. We've already read this several times. Then we go to verse 35. Verse 34, they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. And look what the very next thing that Mark records. I have to believe this is how Mark remembered the conversation going. Jesus says, I'm going to be, I'm going to be insulted and scourged and killed and raised the third day. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant that we may sit one on your right hand, the other on your left in your glory. Do you see a dissonance between those two subjects? Jesus is saying, I'm going up to Jerusalem. They're going to treat me bad. They're going to hurt me bad. Then they're going to kill me dead. And and James and John are going, hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can I be the most important guy and my brother the second most important guy? (laughs) You know, and if it was you and me, we'd turn to him and say, I'll give you something for the kingdom. My goodness. I've been on crime scenes or places where fires destroyed someone's home. And when a crime happens or a big fire happens, the, the initial investigation takes a long time. And there's always people standing around. And by people, I mean, 
you know, maybe here's a police officer or a firefighter who's kind of securing the scene, and he really doesn't have anything to do, and there might be two or three of them. But they got to keep order and so on. So I would be standing there with them and kind of talking, trying to build relationship a little bit. And, you know, the longer you stand there and the more you talk, the more relaxed you get. And pretty soon somebody says something funny or they tell some story, man, you won't believe what happened to me this week. And the next thing you know, you're laughing, ha, 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 and this person's house just burned down. And that's when somebody comes over and goes, hey, guys, keep it down over here. I can't imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to be, to have this heaviness of heart about what was coming for him. And these guys are talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. But none of that slowed Jesus down on his walk to the cross, not even when he saw the hatred of mankind coming. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Just a few pages beyond where we are there. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 6 and verse 6. Now it happened on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and he taught and a man was there whose right hand was withered. He had a, you know, a palsied hand or something. It was all messed up. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath and they thought that was breaking God's law. It was not, but they thought it was. So that they could have an accusation against him. They're, they're just there so they can accuse him of wrongdoing. But Jesus knew, verse 8, Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. So he stood up. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing to, these, to the haters. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Again, if you're in that situation, you do something good, and somebody comes along and criticizes you severely, are you thinking, boy, I'm just going to keep doing good for you? Are you? Or are you thinking, I'm going to take my toys and go home? Jesus, Jesus, look at verse 8, he knew their thoughts. Now, to those of us who have known God and read the Bible for any length of time, we're not surprised that God knew their thoughts omniscience is the prime attribute of divinity. There's a great theological phrase for you. Let me unpack it a little bit. Omni means all, and the, the, the word science, or when it's together, omniscience means all-knowing. To be all-knowing is a prime attribute of God. To be divine is to have the, the nature of God. Omniscience is a prime attribute of God. Omniscience, omnipotence, Ah, oh, omnipresence, thank you. Kimberly and, I, Kimberly and I talked about forgetting things while you're on the platform. God knows everything all the time, before it happens, while it's happening, and after it's happening. 
And you say, how can that be? It's because God exists outside of time. Read Genesis 1. He created time. And so he sees the end from the beginning. And so here's Jesus. As he walked through his human life, he voluntarily limited the exercise of his divinity. He did not shed off any of the qualities of being God, but he voluntarily limited those things and took on a human nature and eventually submitted himself to death, as Philippians 2 says, even the death of the cross. The author of Hebrews sums up this knowing of God when it says this, there is no creature, no, no created living being hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows what you are thinking right now, just like he knew what those Pharisees were thinking. And on several occasions we get a glimpse of this, like here, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your heart? Jesus' ability to know all things must have broken his heart. I don't know if you've ever meditated on what, what a scary thing it would be if we could all read minds. You know, e e even those of us who want to control our thinking struggle to control our thinking. Jesus knew what people were thinking. And it must have broken his heart at times like this. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, this one area of Israel, because the Jews sought to kill him. Can you imagine going into a room and, 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 and looking at somebody like Nathan there and saying, you want to kill me? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine perceiving the hatred in people? Wow. And yet he kept right on walking. He kept right on walking. John 15, this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written, they hated me without a cause. That's a prophecy about Christ. They hated him without a cause. I mean, think about just this healing. Here's a guy whose hand is withered, and Jesus is going to heal it, and the Pharisees hate Jesus for healing this guy. And you think, that's messed up. Yes, it is. And yet Jesus was not deterred by that hatred. Today, the Sunday before Easter, is called Palm Sunday. I think you probably know that. And it's from this event in the life of Christ. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. He's about to ride in on uh, the colt of a donkey, and that's the way that a, a king would ride into town in triumph. He's going to come into Jerusalem the week before he's going to be crucified. And so they're spreading the leafy branches, the palm branches on the ground. That's why this is called Palm Sunday. 
Then those who went before and those who followed in this parade, this entourage, said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Here he comes. It's a hero's welcome. It's the day, it's that day's equivalent of a ticker tape parade. And he's coming into town, and I can imagine the 12 apostles were going, this is it. He's just about to stand up and say, I'm your king. Let's throw off the Roman oppression and have Israel be a kingdom again. And they're all excited. They're all excited until this happened. A few days later, the chief priest and the elders persuaded the multitudes. It had to be some of the same people. Persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas to be released and to destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, release Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. Can you imagine? He received a hero's welcome and a heel's exit. He comes into town and everybody's going, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then a, a few days later they're saying, Crucify him. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But Jesus walked right on. He saw the hatred of mankind coming and he kept on walking. Why did he do that? He did it because Jesus saw the blessings coming. The chief blessing and the source of all of our blessings is summarized in this prophecy of Jesus from Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul. That's a, a reference to on the cross when he's suffering and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. God tells us at the very end of this book that those who have never believed in Christ will be judged by two books. One is a book with their life written in it. The other is the book of life with the names of those who have believed in Christ in it. And God says those, we will be, they will be judged by the book and if their name is not written in the book of life, they will be cast into the lake of hell. But what this passage right here says is, when you believe in Christ as your Savior, God takes all of those sins and puts them on to Christ. He will bear the, their iniquities. We don't have to bear them. We don't have to, to somehow think we're going to do enough good to earn our way to heaven. We can't do it. God put our iniquities on him. The Apostle Paul expounds on this truth here in Romans 5. Therefore, as through one man's offense, Adam, 
Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even, even through one man's righteous act, Jesus, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, Jesus, many will be made righteous. If you want to know what the word justification or justify means, it means this right here, to be made righteous. Jesus died on the cross so that God could take your sin and put it onto him. And what's left over here? Well, when you believe in Christ, the God, the Holy Spirit comes into you. Jesus comes into you. You are a new person in Christ. And what are some of the blessings that come from our justification? Number one, we don't have to be punished for our sin. Many people think they want to try to earn heaven on their own. I, I got news for you. All you're going to earn is a place in hell being punished for your sin, which will never be paid for. But those of us who have believed in Christ have received the blessing of Christ's suffering, and we don't have to be punished for our sin. Our future is not in hell. Number two, we gain peace with God, which means the fear of death is removed. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? God has taken it away in Christ so that as I look forward, I'm about to be 60 years old, which means I'm on the tail end of life, not the beginning. And someday, I'm going to face death like my friend Bill Belshaw just did a few weeks ago. And I'm going to look straight into it and say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Not because I am anything, but because God is in me. He's taken my sins away and he's replaced the fear of death with the peace of God. Number three, we're healed from the spiritual sickness of sin. What does that mean? It means we can have a transformed life. I do not have to settle for a settled life. Have you seen the TV commercials about the people with the, 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 the slow internet or the slow cable? And we're settlers. That's what we do. You know what, folks? The whole American society are settlers. And I'm not talking about your speed of your internet hookup. They, 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 they muddle through life and mess up their lives, and when they come to a change point, they go, well, what are you going to do? You know what you can do? You can believe in Christ as your Savior. He will come in and start to transform your life. My wife was in a meeting recently where everybody introduced themselves, and they all talked about their lives, and it didn't take long to realize they were all divorced. They were all single parents. They were all settlers. And she said, as only my wife would do in a meeting like that, my name's Sue Lunsford. I've been married 39 years. I got three kids that are all married, and I got eight grandkids, and I have a great life. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? It's not because she's special. They said to her, how did you do that? They actually asked that. She said, in eighth grade, my Sunday school teacher taught me to pray for my future husband. Yeah, but how did you do that? 
like the disciples, don't get it. Hey friends, you do not have to settle for a mediocre, difficult, ruinous life and say, well, what are you gonna do? It's the best you can. Jesus died so that your sin could be removed, the life of Christ inserted, and so that you could live a life that is progressing and changing and developing and impacts the world in a positive way. I mean, you haven't heard all of Josh Mallory's story, but he was, he was headed to be a settler. And Jesus changed him. And through him is changing other people. And that's why Christ didn't turn aside to the right hand or to the left. He walked right into the cross. And the fourth blessing we can have is this. We, we're given an inheritance in heaven. We're given an inheritance in heaven. Our eternal life will be glorious even if our human life isn't that great. God didn't say you have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He said you have the ability to be righteous and then have eternity with me. Oh, my goodness. Somebody asked me recently if I'm tired of the traveling in, in our new ministry, and I thought for a minute, and I said no. Now, understand something. The last time you saw me preach here, at the end of the sermon, I headed for the door and you speculated about what was going on. I had to literally almost run, I drove the speed limit, all the way without stopping to get on an airplane in, C in Seattle to get to a church in Spokane that's in crisis and, and, uh, and uh, airplane schedule on and on. I missed, I missed the flight. There was like 400 people in the security line. The plane is backing away after I ran, and that's a pathetic thing to see. <laughs> I ran from the security, after I fastened my pants back up in the security. <laughs> and I went and put on my sad face and they put me on another airplane from another, another provider and I, and I made it there 15 minutes ahead of time. Do I enjoy that? No, no. But, do I enjoy helping folks? And God did work through that circumstance and has changed some things already in that church and they're already on a bad, better path than they were two weeks ago. So yeah, do I enjoy that? Yeah, yeah. Um, Jesus did not enjoy the cross who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame. No, he didn't enjoy the cross, but he was not deterred by any of these terrible things that he had to walk through. He walked straight on. And so his, Jesus' sacrificial love for us deserves the expression of our love for him. And that is summarized in this passage from Hebrews. Therefore, Jesus, that he might sanctify or make righteous the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. They would not put somebody to death inside the city limits because that desecrated the city. They would do it outside. And so the author of Hebrews says, let's go out there and stand with him. Let's not be ashamed to be numbered here with him because he was not ashamed to die for us. 
Let us go out bearing his reproach. For here we have no, no place that's really our home. We seek the one to come. Therefore, here's your takeaway today, church. By him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. No worship service can ever be long enough. No song can be sung enough. No communion service can happen often enough. No act of worship, whatever it might be, could ever happen often enough. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But don't forget to do good and share, because that's a sacrifice also that pleases God. In other words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, Jesus doesn't care if you get the sign of the cross made in charcoal and you deny yourself chocolate for 50 days, he doesn't care. He doesn't want that. What he wants is for you to, 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 to fathom as best as your human uh, spiritual mind can what he went through and say, I will praise him for my salvation. I will praise him for my life. And I will serve those around me out of love for him. He wants and deserves our consistent praise and our acts of service done from a sincere appreciation for his walk to the cross for us. Heavenly Father, must have grieved your heart to put him to this pain Jesus, we know that it was a hard thing for you, but we thank you for it today. Holy Spirit, please remind us to worship Christ. Please remind us to thank him. Please remind us to do acts of service out of love for him. I pray in his name, amen.